Corona. So. so this morning we turn, of course, to the Mahamaitri, great loving kindness. And it's, I think it's kind of nice to have a sense of familiarity. You kind of know where we're going here. There'd be no big surprises. That's where the real familiarization meditation comes in. When you're getting surprises and like, oh, 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 that's for hearing and thinking. By the time you get meditation, that's just for going deeper, right? And so hopefully we can go deeper in the practice today. But I'd like to begin just by highlighting a theme that's really been running through this entire retreat, now that we're in the final, final week. And the, uh, this theme is balancing earth and sky, you know, earth and sky. It's come up in so many different guises or manners. How many times have you heard me say that really the core of the practice is developing a deepening, deepening sense of ease, of relaxation, of groundedness, at the same time maintaining clarity or even ex- accentuating clarity, right? It's earth and sky. The earth is that sense of groundedness, ease, relaxation, that kind of comfort there. But the sky is the pristine, wide open sky, fresh, open, and clear. So that's just that's all the way through, that settling body, speech, and mind. It's balancing earth and sky when you're b- balancing mindfulness of breathing with shamatha without a sign. Right? And we've seen that crop up again and again. Be deeply at ease and yet maintain a clarity. We see it in this perhaps the most often quoted statement by Padmasambhava. At least I've seen it a number of times. And Padmasambhava is saying, while my view is as vast as space, when it comes to my conduct, it's as precise as parched barley flour, you know? So that precise, so fine, means just totally grounded where you are. Right now, what's happening in the mind? What's happening if you're speaking? What's happening? How is the speech coming out? If you are physically active in any way, how's that, how's that working out, you know? Is this all in accordance with Dharma? Are you just kind of like in a flow of Dharma, that your body, speech, and mind activities are just all right in the current, almost like you are a stream enter in the stream of Dharma? That's grounded. That's grounded. So even if you never get around to meditating, if you have that confidence, just the flow of your body, speech, mind activity, always in accordance with Dharma, you can live happily, die happily, have a peaceful bardo, and have no qualms about where you're going after that. And that's with not even a moment of meditation. Right? That's pretty good. So that's the groundedness. At the same time, this is Maha Maitri, this noble Maitri, this great Maitri, why couldn't all sentient beings find happiness and the causes of happiness? And then, of course, as we bring wisdom to that question, then we're aware, of course, a very important, a very important point, that there are dimensions upon dimensions of happiness. And so just as with suffering, we wish all sentient beings, very much including ourselves, to be free of blatant suffering. None of us like it free of the suffering of change, free of pervasive existential suffering, but likewise when it comes to happiness. Once again, there are modalities, there are dimensions upon dimensions. And the Buddha actually spoke of them in some detail. And um, so I'd like to just share a couple of quotes. They're not very long, but I think they're very much to the point. So this is from, oh, just one more point of balancing earth and sky. Something I just utterly savor doing. I feel so enormously fortunate. Because early on, well, actually the first book I ever picked up that uh, was on meditation that I could understand and actually start practicing was uh, the great German monk scholar, Yanaponikateta, his book, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation. And it's on the Four Applications of Mindfulness. Really a wonderful book. 
That's the first one I said, oh, that, I can relate to this. This is good. And so I just started practicing that on my own when I was living in Germany. Uh, but there's the Theravada. So I was, even though I knew that wasn't my path, that, that was, I wouldn't become a Theravada monk and follow it and so forth, uh, even before then, talking about earth and sky, the first one I picked up was sky, right? The Dzogchen book, the Tibetan book with great liberation. That's sky, that's space, that's Dzogchen, right? And so it was like, wow, pure intuition. I had no experience of that at all, and I couldn't make sense of it intellectually or rationally, but it just cut right through empiricism and rationalism, or rationality, not insulting either one, not violating either one, but just kind of cutting right through to intuition. It's like the arrow struck my heart. I'm like, whoa, I'm in love. <laughs> you know, Just knowing this is going to be it. But then the first one to practice, well, that was earth. It's mindfulness of the body. That's where it starts, right? Mindfulness of the body, that's earth. That's grounded. That's right here and now in the evident, the tangible, the, the, the apparently substantial. And so balancing earth and sky... But I've loved doing so. so that, that's how I started when I was just on my own in Europe, having no teacher. And then after, what was it, two, three years, three years, four years in Dharmasala, really immersing myself in the language, and philosophy, psychology, meditation, and so forth, then stepped out, stepped out of the, the uh, how do you say, the formal monastic philosophical training, and just went up to the mountains to meditate. And then I had the great good fortune to spend a whole summer uh, with a monk who'd been trained quite intensively for six years in, in Thailand. So I just got drenched in the Pali Canon. One suit after another after another. We're meditating, studying together. I was teaching him Buddhist epistemology. He was teaching me the Pali Canon. It was just such a celebration. you know. I met him. just uh, I saw him again just this last spring. It was very, very nice to see him. Um, he's a very good man. Very good man. So in any case, that balancing earth and sky, well, Ever since then, that was 1974, really spending a whole summer immersing. Then what was it, 1980, 80 heading off to Sri Lanka going. So this balance of the, of the Pali Canon, it's earth. It's grounded. It's right where you live. It's practical. It's sensible. You know, and, it's, and it's inviting you to bring your awareness right to where you live now. Your body, your feelings, your mind, the environment, other people. It's so like, whoa, I, this is like a science of life, science of being alive. Why don't you do it well? That means you have to pay close attention to it, right? That's earth. At the same time, Dzogchen. All through, so we're starting Shravakayana, right? There's earth. It's the foundation. It's the ground. And then through the Pratyeka Buddha, the Bodhisattvayana, the outer tandras, the inner tandras, oh, Mahayoga, what's it called? Anuyoga, and then finally Atiyoga. So we go through all the Yanas, and there it is. And then opening up into this vast space of Dzogchen. So I frankly, I just love doing this. I just love doing this, going back and forth between the Pali Canon and Dzogchen, between the Buddha Shakyamuni and Padmasambhava. It's just so elegant, and it brings joy to my soul. So we're back to the Pali Canon. Okay. This is from the Anguttara Nikaya, a short sutra in which the Buddha addressed four lay people. What type of happiness, what, what are the kinds of happiness that one might cultivate, realize? So he's not specifically addressing the monks here, but people who are, who are, these are devout followers of the Buddha, but they're not in any particular hurry to achieve enlightenment. They are in a hurry, since they are indeed, this, doesn't, this is not a, a, a lack of sincerity, or faith, or intelligence. It just means for the time being, they're leading the lay way of life. They may have husband or wife, children, 
uh, familial obligations, taking care of parents, or maybe they're running a business, or they're in charge of a farm, all kinds of stuff. And for the time being, they just feel, even if they have great faith, uh, it's not time for them to step out and become a homeless one. Right? So for such people, for such people, then they would be thinking, if they're very devout Buddhists, they'd be thinking, I, want, I would like to live a happy life in this lifetime, but also be sowing karma, that I can have a happy life in the future lifetime. And many lay people will say, I'm not going to be a monk in this lifetime, but I'll pray to be a monk or a nun in the next lifetime. Right? Finish, finish up business here, and then next time. It's very, quite common. Right? So, all right, if that's where you are, what kind of happiness might you expect? Not a bad question, is it? So here's what the Buddha's answer. There, and this is directly from the Buddha. There are these four kinds of happiness to be won by a householder who enjoys sense pleasures from time to time, and when occasion offers. <laughs> I kind of like that. Right. What for? The happiness of ownership, the happiness of wealth, the happiness of freedom from debt, and the happiness of blamelessness. Now, what is the happiness of ownership? Concerning this, a householder has acquired wealth by energetic striving, won by strength of arm and sweat of brow, justly and lawfully won. When he, thinks, when he thinks of this, he feels happiness and satisfaction. I think it's quite sweet, you know, that you've, you've earned a good living, you can take care of your family, take care of your children, maybe take care of your parents as they get older, and there's some sat satisfaction in that, some happiness in that. And he nowhere trivializes this. Just there it is, there's this type of happiness. Okay, now, what is the happiness of wealth? In other words, you're not only able to take care of your family, you have not only adequate means in terms of your ownership, possessions, and so forth, but what about wealth? Okay, you've got a bit more than you need. Right? What about that? Because that brings some happiness too, wouldn't we? All like a bit more than we need. A little bit of cushion. Maybe big cushion. You know. Concerning this, a householder has wealth, justly and lawfully won, and with it, he does many good deeds. When he thinks of this, he feels happiness and satisfaction. Oh, that's even better, isn't it? Quite nice. It gives you a greater, bit greater joy that you have something you need to offer without sacrificing your family and so forth and so on. There's certainly happiness in that. That looks like eudaimonia. The first one's clearly hedonic. Good, we have enough. We're taken care of. We can pay our medical bills, our insurance, mortgage, whatever, in the modern world. But now when it's this, this joy of having a bit of surplus and then not just living higher and higher on the hog, we say in American English, just living with greater greater opulence, greater greater consumption. Consumption, consumption. Oh, look at me, I've got ten houses. Look at me. As the Dalai Lama said when he heard, I think he heard about some mansion up in Montana that has a hundred rooms and it's for one family. And, uh, and he said, you know, it strikes me as unethical. How many rooms can you be in at one, how many rooms can you be in at one time? And how many meals can you eat per day? So why that? Why that? Well, there's a very famous guy in Bombay, one of the richest people in all of India. And in a very poor area of the city, in Mumbai, he's built, I think it's about an 18-floor mansion for himself and his family with multiple swimming pools on different floors to make sure he doesn't have to take the elevator you know, all the time, at least not spend a long time in the elevator, because it's such a hassle. You might have to spend 40 seconds in the elevator when you can only spend 20 and have an extra swimming pool. You know? and, so, and then he gets to look out, all the, look out 
from his windows from the 18th floor and see all the poor people around him. That must give him a real kick. You know. Whether that's ethical, I think I have to agree with the Solomonists. I don't see how that's ethical. This is ethical. You have some superabundance, good. Enjoy giving it away. You know. And you'll still have plenty. So, so much wisdom there, so much ignored in this, in the 85. In the 85. You know, that'll be one of the, one of the numbers, I think, of the 21st century. The 85. And now what about this one? And what is the happiness of freedom from debt? Concerning this, a house owner owes no debt, large or small, to anyone. And when he thinks of this, he feels happiness and satisfaction. It's very much like Socrates, you remember? When Socrates was condemned to death for telling the truth. He was about to drink his hemlock, you know, kill himself, because they really wanted him to kill himself. Uh, then he remembered, oh, I have one debt. I, I owe a cock to, and I'm going to mispronounce it, but it's something like Shephelis, something like that. I shouldn't even say it, because I know I have it wrong. But there's a friend of his, and he, he bought a cock, a male a rooster. Uh, I owe, owe my rooster. So he told his attendant, give him, give him, give him a rooster, because there was some debt there. So then he said, okay, everybody, everything clean? Everything clean? I'm out of debt? Okay, chug-a-lug. And then he took the hemlock, and then he died. You know, leaning, leaving with a clean slate. Socrates, one wise guy, one wise man. And then finally, you can see how little, how, what a wonderful freedom from anxiety that would entail. Just no debts. In other words, you can die anytime, and then no harm. And then finally, what is the happiness of blamelessness? Concerning this, the noble disciple is blessed with blameless action of body, speech, and mind. And when he thinks of this, he feels happiness and satisfaction. Clear conscience, the happiness of a clear conscience, that you're very much aware of your behavior, of body, speech, and mind, and very much of mind as well. Anytime there's an intention, then that's action. Simply having a mental fiction coming up is not an action. It's watching a bad movie if you simply observe it arise and pass. But that's not action, right? So we don't have to be concerned. We don't have to be afraid when anger, hatred, lust, craving, and so forth arise in the mind. We don't have to be afraid. Just watch it. Don't identify with it. And don't start developing intentions based upon them. That's when the action starts. That's when you get in trouble. So the spark and the flame, the spark and the flame that you've heard about before. So, but then the Buddha commented, he concluded, it's a very short talk. Those are the four types of happiness that a, a layperson living in society, socially engaged and so forth, may cultivate, may realize here and now in this lifetime. And then he commented at the very end, the, the, other, the other three, the other three of, of ownership, of wealth, and of freedom from debt, those three, he said, those three are not worth, are not worth one sixteenth of a sixteenth of the happiness of a clear conscience. Yeah. And clearly this fourth one is once again right back in eudaimonia. It's right back in genuine happiness, because you certainly cannot acquire that from the world. That's what you bring to the world, but no possibility no matter how high a mansion you may be able to build for yourself, maybe 36 floors, you still can't purchase or acquire from the world the happiness of a, free of a clear conscience or the happiness of blamelessness. And then very, very briefly here, this is in the Arana the Banga Sutta. In this sutra, just to, just to summarize what he stated, and you'll have this all on your notes, of course, 
The Buddha encouraged his disciples to find out what really constitutes true happiness and based on this understanding to pursue it. So once again, it's wisdom. It's wisdom. What really brings you happiness? Not just a spurt of pleasure here and a spurt of pleasure there, but what actually gives you a sense of happiness that endures, that has longevity, durability, and so forth. What does it? So we've heard this more recently. Joseph Campbell, follow your bliss. And I think he was speaking with wisdom. He wasn't just saying, follow whatever turns you on, because that's just sheer hedonism. A dog or a cat can do that. No, but follow your bliss. What really brings that joy to your heart? A sense of satisfaction, fulfillment, meaning, joy. And then follow that. Well, that's what the Buddha said 2,500 years ago. Follow your bliss. But follow it with understanding. Follow it with wisdom. And then you pick up the scent. You see what really brings you a sense of satisfaction, of joy. And they say, ah, that's it, that's it. Oh, good. Now, trace it. We've done this before, haven't we? Pick up the fragrance. Trace it. Where does it, where, where, where does it lead you when you follow the bliss, when you follow the source back to what truly brings you a sense of well, well-being, sukha, sukha, sukha. And then the Buddha addresses this one, and I'll be finished with a little preamble. In the Gandharaka Sutta, again, of course, from the Pali Canon. Here, now we can understand, the Buddha is probably speaking here, to monks, that is, and monks, what that means is simply a person who has really brought about a revolution in one's own worldview and aspirations, ideals, and way of life, uh, oriented towards liberation. If a monk is not oriented towards liberation, I think a good question is, why are you a monk? (laughs) (coughs) Because these noble robes that that Gachala is wearing, it's a symbol. It's a symbol, here is one who's dedicating his or her life to liberation. This is why in traditional Tibet, uh, if any layperson would simply see a fragment, just a little little bit of torn cloth from a monastic robe, they'd put that in a high place. If they just see it lying someplace, they'd put it up in a tree, off the ground. And why? It's a symbol. It's a very, very meaningful symbol. This is just a little shred of someone who has gone to the homeless state. Now, clearly, that's an ideal. Clearly, it often didn't happen. You know, all kinds of monks, all kinds of nuns like this, all kinds of everybody else. You know, name it. Priest, scientist, banker. Good ones, bad ones, mediocre ones. It's always, it's always been true, even during the time of the Buddha. But we're not, we're not here to do a statistical analysis or run a poll saying this is a symbol. And the more often the ordained sangha live up to that symbol, the healthier the Dharma is. So I've never accepted the notion, I think it's a terrible notion, that now we're in a phase of history where the role of the ordained sangha plays a very minimal role, not a very important role, because it's kind of out of sync with modernity. Well, I'll tell you what's out of sync. Modernity is out of sync with reality. That's what's out of sync. And if we, Buddhists living in the modern world, if we don't get it about the ordained sangha, the significance of that, we just don't get it. We just don't get it at all. It's as important now as it ever was, perhaps more so. Perhaps more so. Because these people symbolically, by their very garb, by their, by their haircut, by what they do with their lives, when they're really living in accordance with the ideals, they're the inspiration for everybody else. So, don't have to be ordained to absolutely devote yourself to Dharma. But here's something that's manifest, it's symbolic. This person has taken or- ordination, taken vows, keeping the vows. That really means something. So I am a great advocate, and have been forever. That is, I can't quite speak for forever, but for this whole life, 
even though for myself, when I was 37, where I was living, it just seemed no longer viable. There was just no support, no context for it at all. And so I decided to give back the precepts. But never, even for an instant, did I feel, oh, this is an unsuitable way of life or anything like that. It was just, this is not going to work for me now if I'm really going to be devoting myself to a life of service. If I wanted to stay in retreat, I would have stayed a monk. No question. Much simpler. But I felt coming out not so practical. So let's just pick that one up again. Oh yeah, but don't go away. There you go. There you are. So just a little bit here, but I think you know it's coming. So in the Kantaraka Sutta, the Buddha now specifically or explicitly addressing those who have who have turned their minds, you know, like the four thoughts that turn the mind, who have turned their minds away from all the allures of samsara and redirected them like iron filings going towards a magnet, redirected with their hair on fire, to redirected everything to the pursuit of liberation. For such people, then he speaks of three levels of happiness. These will be very familiar, and then we'll just go right to the meditation. And the three levels of happiness here are the happiness arising from blamelessness and contentment. So you see the utterly smooth segue there, or even overlap, like the blamelessness, but then the contentment. And the contentment is, as one be, takes ordination, as one, whether as an ordained person or as a yogi, just whatever it is, it's an inward movement, an orientation towards liberation, towards even awakening. Um, what this means is that you are disengaging your interest, your attention, your efforts, away from mundane concerns. The householder may not do that much. Develop the business, have a lot of kids, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that's fine. That's fine. But for those who have become radically disillusioned with samsara and are experiencing this ngen jung, this definite spirit of emergence away from samsara, then what that means is, whether as a yogi, a monk, or a monk yogi, uh, that you are going to be disengaging, disengaging, as we have been here quite largely for the last seven weeks, from sensual pleasures, entertainments, all the stuff, all the allures out there, and reducing our lives to simplicity, not giving ourselves many hedonic props, mostly just trying to be authentic, cultivating the mind. And if one can live such a life of simplicity, sitting quietly in one's own chambers without having to give oneself electric chocks and so forth, um, if one can bear to be in solitude, bear to be with one's own mind, hour after hour, day after day, uh, without entertainment, without even spiritual entertainment, because there's plenty of that. I don't know any tradition that offers more spiritual entertainment than Tibetan Buddhism. <laughs> there are so many cool things, you know, just so many. Gosh, we haven't learned any llama dancing in this retreat. It's so much, the masks and the trumpets and the horns, and it's so much fun. <laughs> you know? So if you want entertainment, Tibetan Buddhism really delivers the goods. At the same time, what we've been looking at, there wasn't a whole lot of entertainment in these last, you know, these last three chapters. And so, can you be content? It's a real simple question. It's a real simple question. When you, for some time, whether it's 20 minutes in the morning, whether it's for a weekend, whether it's for eight weeks, whether it's for eight years, can you live with your body, speech, and mind in the world without dependence upon hedonic pleasures and so forth, devoting yourself to Dharma, can you, be, can you be content? It's a real simple question. Can you be content? Knowing right in the moment, this is the very best thing I can possibly do with my time. 
and I'm content having this opportunity, and I'm taking full advantage of it. So that's the first level of contentment. And of course, it is the contentment of ethics once again. But now ethics in this altered lifestyle, where there are so few props from the hedonic world of entertainment. But now, having stated ethics, you should now definitely know what's coming. Right? Is there another dimension? Something deeper? Something of a higher frequency, so to speak? Yep. That's happiness gained through samadhi. Okay. Samadhi is not only shamatha, it's the four immeasurables, the four greats, renunciation, that whole bandwidth. You know, between ethics and wisdom, everything in between. That includes bodhicitta then. So everything ethics, everything between ethics and wisdom, that's all in the samadhi category. Everything there. Now, shamatha, of course, is a driving force because that's what enables your practice of the four immeasurables and so forth to be powerfully transformative and effective. But there is that happiness, one can say, from a sublimely balanced mind. You see it explicitly in the achievement of shamatha, in the fourth jhana, but that's actually beyond happiness, it's equanimity. But the happiness that arises for cultivating the four immeasurables, that's all in that category. Right? And then finally, the grand finale, and now you definitely know what's coming, so you should be, get a lot of satisfaction by hearing what you expect to hear. Supreme happiness of complete freedom through realization. Supreme happiness of complete freedom through realization. The truth given joy. The joy of knowing reality as it is. And that's the highest. So within the Shravagayana context, that's becoming an art. It's the, the realization of nirvana, the realization coming through the four applications of mindfulness, coming to stream entry and once return and non-return, coming to arhatship, the culmination, the final culmination, liberation, nirvana without remainder. So there's one trajectory leading to higher the supreme happiness. But of course there's the bodhisattva culminating in full enlightenment, there's Dzogchen. And so that highest, greatest happiness, the immutable bliss of Rikpa, pristine awareness, the Dhammakaya itself, for which the essential nature is emptiness, manifest nature is luminosity, and its displays are all-pervasive compassion. So this gives some grist for the mill as we turn then to the cultivation of great loving-kindness, Mahamaitri, that we bring depth to it, we bring wisdom to it. And we also, as we come to that resolve, I shall make it so, have to have a strategy, have to have a plan, right? And that's where wisdom comes in as well, you know? From where you are, and then you can see all the dots connecting to you're actually being able to fulfill that resolve, carry through. Right? Good. So let's practice. Guru Pema Sidi Hum 
may switch postures now. In a spirit of loving kindness, settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state. Then as we proceed to the meditative cultivation of great loving kindness, pose the question, why couldn't all sentient beings be endowed with happiness and the causes of happiness? As you consider happiness, consider these four that the Buddha spoke of for the general public, happiness of ownership, of wealth, of being of freedom from debt, 
and the happiness of a clear conscience. Why couldn't all beings have such happiness and its underlying causes? And then consider those dimensions of eudaimonia, genuine happiness, from a clear conscience and from contentment, from samadhi and from wisdom. Why couldn't all sentient beings be endowed with such happiness and the underlying causes?
then arouse the aspiration, may it be so, may all sentient beings find happiness, the full spectrum of happiness, and its underlying causes. With every outbreath, if you wish, arouse this aspiration, and breathe out the light of loving kindness as you've done before.
than if you will arouse the resolve. I shall make it so. Once again, come from the depths of your being. So this is actually an authentic resolution, not simply lip service or a nice ideal. But once again, for that, you need a plan. What's your strategy for carrying through with this pledge? And once your strategy is clear, once again, you may imagine with every outbreath rays of light flowing out in all directions. And this time, breath by breath, as the light from your heart strikes one individual, one community, and another, and another, one realm of sentient beings, and another, and another, imagine them finding happiness, finding the causes of happiness here and now.
And then finally call upon the blessings of the, of the Guru, of the Enlightened Ones, to enable you to do so. With each in-breath, if you wish, you may imagine in the form of light, blessings of all the Enlightened Ones. And if you Guru, or Gurus, flowing in upon you from all directions, filling, saturating, super-saturating your body, your mind, receiving all the blessings and with every out-breath, breathing out from your heart from this inexhaustible source. And once again, breath by breath, imagine every sentient being finding not only happiness, but the supreme happiness of perfect awakening. cultivating its causes.
release all appearances and aspirations and let your awareness rest in stillness in its own nature. So we began with balancing earth and sky, and let's end the morning session with balancing earth and sky. And that is clearly where this whole trajectory is going, is to bodhicitta. I think it's actually the noblest aspiration that anybody's conceived of, from my perspective. I can't think of any higher aspiration than that of bodhicitta. And I think it's never too soon, never too early in one's spiritual practice to at least seek to arise to that aspiration as vast as space but then not getting spaced out, going into la-la land, you know, like that. You know? Yes, reach to the sky with a view and aspiration as vast as space. But then having aroused that, then we have this phrase in Tibetan, te-chetu, te-chetu. In order to do so, in order to achieve enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings, I'm going to now practice mindfulness of breathing for 24 minutes. And that's how it happens. That's how it happens. One 24-minute session another 24-minute session, do a few more, and then you're enlightened. That's it. I mean, just you know, lay out the breadcrumbs, but connect it, earth and sky, the earth of the practice right now. And it's not just meditation. It's a mother taking care of her children. For the sake of all sentient beings, I achieve enlightenment, and for the sake of that, I'm going to get my kids off to school on time and give them a good breakfast first. You can. It's completely authentic. That's the best thing you can do right now. The best thing Patrice can do right now is be taking care of Elizabeth. She's having a, death, a medical condition. That's the best thing she can do right now. It's wonderful. I think really there's nothing in the world better that Patrice can be doing right now than what she did. You know, it's wonderful. So every little thing can be imbued with zimba, imbued with bodhicitta, taking care of a dharma friend, taking care of your children, and so on. Everything. Earth and sky. Oh, yeah. Dhamma's so good. 